0: Alrighty, welcome again. Today we continue our journey through the book of James. Well, we're almost done. It's James chapter 5 verses 9 to 11. This could be our second last sermon in the book of James. I've called this one, Patient Endurance Among God's People in Times of Trial. So, let's do what we usually do. Let's do our memory verse. You ready? Nice big voices, see if you can do. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Okay. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Awesome. Okay. Okay. Last week, what did we do? Well, we saw that James chapter 5 starts off with this pretty awful warning to the unbelieving rich in the church, to the Jewish churches back then, the Jewish converts. We call them Messianic Jews today. These people, the unbelieving rich, were trusting in their wealth. Remember, wealth brings this false sense of security and it gives temporary comfort as we get everything we want but here james exhorts and encourages us to be patient and establish our hearts to seek the lord and serve in his kingdom so why should we forsake the worldly lifestyle one because it's going to end in disaster it's going to you know weep in hell for your miseries that are coming upon you verse one there and also We're waiting for the Lord. We will be rewarded and every wrong will be righted. Every wrong will be righted. God will make everything good. Justice will be served. And everything that we have done, sacrificed and suffered for the sake of the gospel will be rewarded. And it's going to be a very rich reward. So I'll just pray then we'll start reading. Father, thank you, Lord, for this awesome gift that you have given us in the form of your written word. Lord, every word of it was inspired or breathed by your Holy Spirit. And we do thank you that you have given us your words, your living words in this book. They are powerful and they are useful for teaching, exhorting, rebuking, and training and equipping the man of God for every good work. And we can say the woman of God too. So we just pray that you help us to dig in and to learn and to apply what we learn today too. In Jesus' name, amen. So he's going to read from verses 1 to 11. In James chapter 5, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So, just background from last week. When those people, those rich people, the unbelieving rich, after their trust in their riches, they get to the end of their life, they die. They're going to say, All those things I enjoyed, I wish I'd ever had them. I wish I'd made the choice to follow Jesus. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. That's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. That's where the the vengeance comes in. God will make everything right. He will bring justice. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. And notice there that there's no justice down here, or not much justice down here on earth. There's many people today being hurt and mistreated and abused. Verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Remember last week we talked about that. How long do we need to be patient for? Until the Lord comes for us, whether it be the rapture or we die. It's a lifetime. It's a marathon. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now we come into the verses we're going to talk about today. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. He's talking about believers. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets, who spoke in the name of the Lord, as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So let's have a look at verses 9 to 11. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So this is really interesting. We're going to learn about Job and lots of things today. So firstly, verse 9, Do not grumble. That means, in the original, sigh, groan, or complain against one another. Brethren, so, we're talking about Christians complaining against Christians. Christians grumbling, sighing, being unsatisfied, dissatisfied with other brethren. So, I don't know about you, but when times get tough and things just don't go our way, how do we usually react? You know, the car breaks down or something like that, what happens? Generally speaking, we get grumpy Grumpy old man, yeah? Grumpy old dad. So we turn into Mr. Bad Mood with a bad attitude. We become irritable and impatient. But worst of all, we become critical of other believers and even of God. And we are prone to think or say things like, why did God allow this to happen to me? And we start to become critical and find fault in other believers, grumbling and moaning, complaining against one another. So it doesn't look good to those on the outside the unbelievers looking in and it doesn't encourage each other in a walk with the lord now verse 9 is pretty scary but i'm going to soften this up a bit at the end so i'm just presenting it how it is lest you be condemned or judged that literally means judged behold the judge is standing at the door so these times of hardship James is telling us here: these times of hardship are no excuse to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ in an unloving way. We're not going to lose our salvation over it, okay? Don't stress. But we will be held accountable for our thoughts, words, and actions towards other believers when we stand before Jesus at the bema seat judgment. So, this is a judgment of believers. Now, what is this judgment? We've talked about it before. It's a judgment of reward. So, I'm just going to read those verses. So. We all understand what the judgment is that James is referring to. It's a beamer seat judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. Judgment Day. The beam of Seat. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned he will suffer loss. So this is the condemnation that James is talking about here. You had the opportunity to earn reward, but you didn't. You made a bad choice. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So I just want you to notice and emphasize this, that if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Some people might come through the beamer seat judgment smelling like smoke, how Lindsay said. So this judgment is a judgment of reward. Now what about grace? Where's the compassion of God in this? Well, the Bible tells us that all believers have the Holy Spirit living within them, and therefore we have no obligation to live according to the desires of our sinful nature. And we read that in Romans eight, twelve, and 13. However, and this is where I'm softening in a bit and just reading in the big picture, we need to recognize that when we are born again, we are baby or immature Christians. So, as a parent, do you have the same expectations of your three-month-old baby as you do your 17-year-old son? You'd <laughs> be foolish to, right? Okay. So, in the same way, God's expectations of us change as we mature. So, when we are first born again, we're baby or immature Christians. We don't know much, and our faith is weak. When it comes to spiritual warfare, we are lacking knowledge and experience. You can see one John chapter two verse twelve. And when it comes to developing character, we have only just begun. Okay? We've only just begun. Now, I've called this the road to producing God's agape love. Why? Because God's agape love is the pinnacle. It's the last thing that we achieve in our character development process. Sanctification. Becoming Christ-like. It's like we've only just enrolled in God's becoming Christ-like character transformation program. <laughs> so, I'm going to read Second Peter chapter 1, a few verses from there. And this shows us that although God has already given us all the resources we need to live a godly life, we still need to work hard to develop the godly character potential that all believers receive when they're born again. So, understand that it's a process. Becoming Christ-like is a process and it takes effort. So, Let's read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-11. to By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Okay, so there's the promise, there's the provision already made. Now in verse 5 it says, In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. And here it tells us how we grow in character. It says, Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop their character, you could say, in this way, are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things, and you will never fall away. That's a good promise. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, does character development, does growth in that character happen automatically? No. Okay. What does it say? Work hard or be diligent to prove that you are really among those God has called and chosen. Now, this is not saying work hard to be saved, but rather once you are saved and given the potential to become like Christ, the hard work you put into developing your character will show or prove to others that you really are a true believer as people around you see the change in you that God is doing. So why is it so important that we develop our character, that we mature in our walk with God, in our relationship with God? Well, it says, the more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So going back to our example of the three-month-old and the 17-year-old, which child is more useful? Who can wash the car? Who can do the dishes? You know, Who can help out around the house? The three-month-old is just, feed me, feed me, feed me. And the 17-year-old says, yep, no problems. So that's what it's like for us. We want to be more productive and useful in the kingdom of God. So to put it simply, the more mature or more Christ-like we become, then the more useful we become. And we receive a greater reward. Now, how do we develop these Christ-like character traits? Well, Spend time in the presence of God, in the Word, in prayer, and in fellowship. Now, Ray Comfort wrote a little pamphlet called "Save Yourself Some Pain," and it talks about ways of accelerating your Christian growth. Why is that so important? Because if you stay as a baby, you're going to be grumbling more, and hurting other people, and you're going to be falling to sin, and you're going to be ineffective in sharing the gospel to other people. So he says, you know, he wrote this thing and it says, save yourself some pain. So we can choose to grow quickly or we can choose to kind of be stagnant and remain as a baby. So some people are Christians who have been Christians for, I don't know, 20 years and they're still wearing nappies. It's not a nice sight, you know. Christian wearing nappies 20 years on, yeah? We all wear nappies when we're first born again. We're all brand new Christians. It's okay. You know, we've all got to learn. We'll all go through that stage. But you don't want to stay wearing nappies. You want to mature. You want to grow up. Now, I just want to focus on the last two stages of our character development as stated in 1 Peter chapter 1. Brotherly love and then. God's agape love. So brotherly love is the love that is shown by believers to believers, especially during times of trial. And the Greek word behind that is Philadelphia, and it's similar to the phileo love. It's brotherly love. This is the opposite of grumbling against one another. So Christians of good character will not grumble against one another. Of course, we all can fall and have a bad day. But as we mature, more often than not, well, more and more, we will treat others well and not be grumbling when we go through hard times. Then there's God's agape love. And this is the next step. So this is kind of in addition to what James is saying, but I think it's important. God's agape love, the final frontier in character development. This is not just loving those who love you. This is not just loving those who are already saved. This is loving those who are intentionally hurting and persecuting you. This is loving your enemies. Remember, what does Romans say? For when we were sinners, Christ died for us. And another verse in there, it says, Who would die for a good man, but Christ died for us while we were still sinners? So, God loved us while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies. That's agape love. That's the pinnacle of our character development. That's the destiny, that's where we want to be in our character development, where we have a character where we can love even our enemies with unconditional love. So why am I saying all this? Well, I don't want you to be discouraged when you find it difficult to obey what God's Word says about how to love each other in times of trial. So if we're struggling, which we all do, just remember that although God has given us everything we need to live a godly life, we still need to learn how to put it into practice. And what James is going to go on to show for our encouragement is that there are many who have already achieved this level of maturity, this level of Christ-likeness, where they have learned to love their brethren and show agape love to their enemies, to forgive their enemies and love their enemies and really care for their enemies. Now, I'm going to give a little illustration here. Think of your favorite AFL football player, whoever you want. Now, is it true that they were born with the potential to be a great football player? They had to be, right? Otherwise, it would never been a great football player. But was their achievement, was their success guaranteed? Just because they were born with the potential, doesn't mean they were promised to be a great football player. No. Okay. So what did they do? Well, as they grew up, they had to go through the various leagues and competitions, and along the way, they gained the knowledge and develop the self-discipline, endurance, and skills necessary to compete in the AFL. Now, in the same way, because of the blessings and promises that God has already given us, we all have the potential inside of us to become the people God is calling us to be, that is, to be like Christ. However, just like the amazing AFL football player and all his skills and ability, we all need to be disciplined and willing to train hard so that we can grow up to be a Christ-like Christian who loves at all times with God's agape love. It's not going to happen automatically. It's something we have to work at. God does the work, but we need to submit ourselves to him and we need to always be listening to the Holy Spirit revealing things to us so we can go to God and ask for help to change. So, summarizing this part, what does it mean for the Christian, or what does it look like for the Christians to be at the top of their game, to be playing in the top league, so to speak? Well, we love unconditionally. We love and willingly forgive even our enemies, just like Christ loved us while we were still his enemies and died for us. So, another application here, talking about grumbling, going back to that verse. We must remember that none of us are fully mature. So we can't expect each other to always respond in the right way. Does that make sense? We can never expect any of us to be perfect. So we must have grace towards each other when we do grumble, okay, when we go through hard times. Remember, we're all growing. And Paul describes the kind of attitude that we should have towards one another. Ephesians 4.32, it says, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So that's the kind of attitude that we need to have. We need to seek to encourage each other to grow and become more Christ-like. So we've got two choices. When someone gets grumpy, we can get grumpy along with them. And be too grumpy, old man. Or we can choose to forgive and to love and to encourage and encourage them to grow as well. So, I like Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. It says, Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And this has application to our families as well. When something doesn't go right in the family, what happens? You get grumpy. So this verse here is also very important in our family relationships, be husband and wife, parent child, even siblings, brother sister sister sister. Okay, if one gets grumpy, you can either get grumpy as well, and you can start to fight, or you can choose to respond in love. You can be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you, and we can. Think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. So I reckon the family unit is the hardest environment to demonstrate Christ-like behaviors and attitudes. And you've probably heard the saying before. You've got the engagement ring, the wedding ring, then the suffering. God puts two sinners into a very close Environment where you're together all the time and you've got to learn to get along. So now we move to verse 10. It says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Now, again, I was saying before that there's a lot of people who have reached this stage of maturity where they can love their brethren and they can show agape love and have compassion towards their enemies. There's lots of prophets in the Old Testament, but I'm going to use Jeremiah as a quick example, just of one of these. So James says, my brethren, take the prophets, right? So here's one. Some of the highlights of Jeremiah's suffering include being put in the stocks, thrown into prison, lowered into a miry dungeon, or like a well, an empty well, where he almost died, and he's sinking in the mud. Can you imagine that? Dark, stinky mud, and you're sinking and sinking. And The only reason he lived is because someone pulled him out. He was also ridiculed and put down by the people on many occasions, falsely accused, taken advantage of. However, worst of all, the people he loved, the nation of Judah, over a period of many years, continuously, rejected the message of repentance that God gave Jeremiah for them. And Jeremiah, I don't know if you know this, but he was known as the weeping prophet. So, you know... Us, me, I don't know how I'd react in that situation. What would I do if the people that God called me to minister to kept on rejecting me, putting me in wells, tried to kill me, you know, putting me in the stocks, in prison, all these things. Would I still have a heart that wept for them? Would I still have a heart that was so concerned for them that I was willing to keep on sharing the message with a soft heart? So Hebrews eleven thirty-five to thirty-nine it gives a description of some of the things that happened to the prophets in the Old Testament. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sword in half. And others were killed with a sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats. Destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. And verse 39 says, All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Now, the question is, a good question, I think, why are godly people so often persecuted? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in John fifteen eighteen and 21. It says, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Strong language there. It hates you. The world hates us if we are Christ-like, if we follow Jesus. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master, since they persecuted me. Naturally, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me. For they have rejected the one, that is the Father, who sent me. Now, in verse 11, it says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. And last week, we were talking about perspective and how our perspective can change how we think, or well, our perspective is the way we think, but if we change the way we think, it changes the way we react. Question is, living a prosperous, comfortable, and financially secure life, is that a proof of God's blessing? No. Listen to what Jesus calls blessed. Listen to Jesus' description of the blessed life in the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. So what did James say? Look at the example of the prophets. They suffered at the hands of religious people. But woe to you who are rich! for you have received your consolation woe to you who are full for you shall hunger woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep woe to you when all men speak well of you for so did the fathers to the false prophets that really turns it upside down doesn't it you know in high school i was really kind of a bit lonely and i was thinking why can't i be invited to those parties why can't i be accepted by the majority of the kids in my year group. Well, I didn't like doing the things they were doing. God protected me. And now, with this new perspective that I have through reading the Word of God more, I don't want to be like them. Those who are living it up, who are full they're going to hunger those who are laughing now at the parties and all that they're going to mourn and weep so we can suffer now and be blessed later or we can live it up now and suffer later and that's basically how it works now we come to the example of job in verse 11 it says indeed we count them blessed to endure you have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. I love the book of Job. When it comes to describing persecution and suffering and the heavenly perspective, the eternal perspective, for me, the book of Job is a holy of holies. There's no greater example, aside from Jesus, of a man successfully enduring suffering and trials without giving up, cursing God, and denying his faith. And that's why James uses Job as an example of patient endurance in suffering. So let's just quickly summarize Job's suffering because it says in the scripture there, you have heard of. These people, the Jews that James was talking to, would have been very familiar with the book of Job. So let's become familiar with it. What did Job go through? Well, Job suffered the death of all his 10 children unexpectedly at the same time. So imagine losing one child. That's difficult, but losing all 10 of your children at the same time and you loved them very much. He was dedicated. He was a doting father. He loved his kids. Another thing he, that happened to him was he lost all his possessions. He was very rich and he lost all his possessions, including most of his staff, his servants. Job his reputation, he went from being the greatest and most honored man in the East to the laughing stock of the East. This is a horrible one. Job had a very nasty wife. <laughs> she encouraged Job to curse God and die. Who needs that kind of wife, eh? Job had the worst kind of friends. They relentlessly, continuously, never-endingly, day after day, falsely accused and condemned him. They tried to convince Job that his severe and extreme suffering could only be due to him having some unconfessed sin in his life. That God was judging him, punishing him. Also, Job lost his health and suffered extreme physical pain for months. Now, you know if you had a boil, how painful that is? Imagine being covered in really painful boils from your head to your toe. And being like that, for months. And all these things were happening simultaneously. His friends were being nasty to him, accusing him. He's in pain. He was mourning over the death of his kids. And people were ridiculing him. If you read through the book, it shows that people were talking about him and he was being ridiculed. He was going through a lot. So verse 11 says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So, James is telling us here four things about Job and why he is a good example for the suffering Christian. So, the first thing is the perseverance of Job through the trial is that he never gave up. Secondly, God had a purpose or goal in Job's suffering, the end intended by the Lord. Thirdly, Job's trial showed that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. That's interesting. Again, a change in perspective. Trials show that God is merciful and compassionate, not hard and vengeful. Four, Job was considered blessed because he endured the trial. So let's go through those one at a time. The first one is the perseverance of Job. So, Job refused to curse God despite his severe suffering. And I'm going to go through some of the scriptures that show Job's faithfulness to God despite him having no understanding of why things were happening. When we read the book of Job and we have the big picture, we have the heavenly perspective. We hear the conversation between Satan and God. Job had none of that. Remember that as we go through. So I'm putting this in the context of a boxing ring. Okay, round one. Satan versus God. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? (laughs) What's God doing here? He's boasting about his servant Job. He's boasting about his kid. Yeah. He's saying, Have you seen my servant Job? (laughs) He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. This is the Lord himself. This is God boasting about one of his servants, one of his children. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is, but reach out and take away everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Okay, here's a challenge. All right? Here's a challenge. Take those things away from him, that financial security, his family, and surely Job will curse you to your face. And God says, all right, you may test him. God gives Satan permission to test Job. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So here we see a limit put on what Satan can and can't do. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and in verses 13 to 19 of Job chapter 1, Job's children are killed and he loses all of his possessions in dramatic and traumatic ways. In verse twenty we have Job's response it says Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. Can you imagine that? After all this has happened to him? He grieves, yes, we anyone would grieve, that's a natural human response. He shaved his head as a sign of grief, mourning. And fell to the ground what? To curse God? No. To be angry? No. To worship. And said, I came naked from my mother's womb and will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. So what is worship? It's submission to God. Here we see worship. Job is submitting himself to God. God, I trust you. I submit to you. I trust that what you're doing is good for me. And verse 22 The conclusion of this first part, in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Pretty cool, eh? So the scoreboard is God won, Satan zero. (laughs) Satan made this accusation and Satan lost. It was a wrong accusation. Round two. This is the loss of Job's health. And Job endures prolonged and excruciating pain. So let's read the scripture. It's Job chapter 2, verses 3 to 10. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. And, pointing a finger at Satan, (laughs) gloating in a godly way, he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. It's interesting,, yeah, even though you urged me to harm him. So who did the hurting? It was actually Satan, but it was actually God in the sense that God had allowed it, you see Satan replied to the Lord, "Skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face." All right, do with him as you please," the Lord said to Satan, "But spare his life." So Satan left the Lord's presence. And he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die! Great wife. But Job replied, You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. Amazing. Just amazing. So, scoreboard is God 2, Satan 0. So, a truly incredible example of perseverance in trials. Now the question is, how could Job be so strong? Well, let's find out. Let's read Job chapter 1 verses 1 to 5. What gave Job the strength to endure this trial? I'm going to give you the answer before you read it. I want you to notice it as you do read it. Job prepared his heart. Okay? Job prepared his heart. That's what the scripture says. And the psalmist says, David, I will prepare my heart to seek the Lord, yeah? i prepare my heart. I'm going to set my face. I'm going to remain submitted to God. So, Job 1, 1-5. There was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. You see his manner of life. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in the homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. You see how much he loved his children and his concern for the spiritual well-being. He would get up early in the morning, a sign of faithful morning devotions with God, relationship with God, and offer a burnt offering, a picture of worship, a sacrifice. For Job said to himself, Perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice, getting up early in the morning sacrificing to the Lord, worshipping the Lord, staying away from evil, fearing God, a man of complete integrity. This was Job's regular practice. So Job had a strong daily walk with God. He was a holy and righteous man who feared God and he was also a worshipper of God. So basically, Job, I mean this fits in with what we did last week, right? Materialism. Job passed the test of materialism. He was the richest man in the east. Did he allow his material wealth to rule him? No. So, for all these years, Job has been fighting and overcoming trusting in his riches, trusting in his reputation, trusting in the apparent security that his riches can seem to bring. (laughs) But what happened to his riches? How long did it take for his riches to disappear? Instantly, one day, all gone. And because Job hadn't made his riches his God, he made God his God, when his riches went, he could still keep worshipping God. And he wasn't destroyed. So, my point here is that If in the good times we choose to continue to seek God, to strengthen ourselves, to prepare our hearts, to continually humble ourselves before him and rely on him even when it seems we don't have to, then we will have the strength to endure the hard times as well. Our hearts will be prepared, established as we learned last week, and we will pass the test. Another thing to consider is that God knew the condition of Job's heart. And therefore, he knew that Job was strong enough to stand the test, to pass the test. So, now we come to the second point the end intended by the Lord. What's the motive or the purpose in suffering? Well, it's interesting. The motive and the purpose for Job's suffering was for him to be an example. To angelic beings. Interesting, eh? Job was used as a lesson to angelic beings. Did you realize that the same is true for the church today? Ephesians 3.10.11 God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the angels are watching and God is using us, the church, just like he used Job to reveal things to the angels. Now, there's other reasons for going through trials apart from revealing things and teaching angels. There's three others. One is to be a witness to a lost and dying world. So when we go through hard times and the world sees us strong when we're weak, the world sees us, you know, someone's dying of cancer or something, and they're strong, they have faith, and there's no fear in their eyes, there's no fear in their heart. Then they say, well, how can this beat? Well, it's because they have Christ. So one of the reasons for our trials is to be a witness to a lost and dying world, to bring glory to God through our suffering. Another reason is, like we, in a memory verse, James 1, 2-4, is what? To help us grow in our character. We talked about that before. And there's one more reason that God might put us through a trial, and that is to correct us if we're sinning. Sometimes we need to ask God why we're going through trial, because it could be because we're sinning. Now, God has a good purpose for our trials. True? All the time, every time. Shouldn't we be willing to submit to God's will for our lives? Even it involves suffering. Now, David Guzik has this fantastic way of looking at it. He said, If a man were to attack me with a knife, I would resist him with all my strength and count it a tragedy if he succeeded. Yet, if a surgeon comes to me with a knife, I welcome both him and the knife. Let him cut me open, even wider than the knife attacker, because I know his purpose is good and necessary. So i read that again. If a man were to attack me with a knife, I would resist him with all my strength and count it a tragedy if he succeeded. That's an enemy, right? Someone who doesn't have your good at heart. Yet if a surgeon comes to me with a knife, someone who wants to help you, I welcome both him and the knife let him cut me open even wider than the knife attacker because I know his purpose is good and necessary. So it comes down to this Do I trust the doctor with a capital D, you know, the great physician, God, as he cuts me open, metaphorically, through trials and suffering? Will I trust him? Do I trust that he's doing what is best for me, that he's making me into a better person, to be more like Christ? If I do, then like Job and Jesus and the prophets and the apostles and millions of other New Testament believers, I'll be willing to completely and joyfully submit to God's will for my life, even if it involves suffering. Remember that it's only during trials that our character can grow. In Romans 8, 28 and 29, it says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So that's how many things some things <laughs> everything to work together for good yeah for god knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so what's the overall purpose in suffering it's he chose them to become like his son so that his son will be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters so our trials are there to give us opportunity to grow to become like christ That's always a good outcome, a good reason for the trial. Now, three point three here. Job's trial showed that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So this word, compassionate, Spurgeon has a quote. He said, I wish we could all read the original Greek, for this word, the Lord is very pitiful, is a specially remarkable one. It means literally that the Lord has many bowels or a great heart And so it indicates great tenderness. So James is saying that God's heart towards us is incredibly tender, incredibly soft. God's heart towards us is really, really soft. He has a soft heart towards us. So when we're going through hard times, this is a really important thing to grab hold of, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. He has a soft heart toward it. Now, we look at the story of Job and we might ask the question, how does the story of Job illustrate the goodness, compassion, tenderness and mercy of God? It's easy to look from the outside like Job's friends and say, well, God's judging you. You know, you've got sin in your life. What have you done? Just repent. They can't see God's soft heart. There are many ways in which God was very compassionate and merciful. I've got a a list from David Guzik I'm going to read out to you. It says, this is a list of the ways that God was demonstrating his compassion and mercy to Job. So firstly, God was very compassionate and merciful to Job because he only allowed suffering for a very good reason. God was very compassionate and merciful to Job because he restricted what Satan could do against Job. God was very compassionate and merciful to Job because he sustained him with his unseen hand through all his suffering. We'll come back to that point later. God was very compassionate and merciful to Job because in the whole process, God used Satan himself. Satan wanted to trick God and cause shame for God, but in the end, Satan went away shamed. God was very compassionate and merciful to Job because at the end of it all, God accomplished something wonderful. Job was a better and more blessed man than ever. Remember that as good as Job was at the beginning of the book, he was a better man at the end of it. He was better in character, humbler, and more blessed than before. So, what Job went through Shows that the verses in 1 Corinthians 10 12 13 are very true. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. So as we read in Job, what did God do? He limited what Satan can do. The temptation will never be more than what you can stand. As you mature, God will allow more. God will allow Satan to do more. But when we're just a baby, God will limit Satan. Now we come to the last point. Job was considered blessed or blessed because he endured the trial. I've got a good quote from Spurgeon. And when we come to look all Job's life through, we see that the Lord in mercy brought him out of it with unspeakable advantage. So that's one thing there. We see that the Lord in mercy brought him out of it all with unspeakable advantage. Job was a better man. And I like this next line. He who tested with one hand supported with the other. And you see that in the book of Job. It's not obvious that who was holding Job? Who was giving Job strength to go through all this? God, in one hand, is testing him, removing his kids, removing his possessions, allowing these friends to be there. But in the other hand, is underneath him, supporting him, holding him up. So I'll read that bit again. He who tested with one hand supported with the other. Whatever Satan's end might be in tempting the patriarch, God had an end which covered and compassed that of the destroyer. And that end was answered all along the line, from the first loss which happened among the oxen to the last taunt of his three accusers. So, how was Job a better man? How was Job better off? Well, let's go to the end of the book of Job. Job chapter 40, verses 1 to 7, and then 10 to 17. The Lord has been communicating to Job, and now Job replies to the Lord. I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. You asked, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, Listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Now verse 5, listen very carefully to this verse. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. So, before the trial, Job's relationship with God was relatively shallow. I'd only heard about you, but after the trial, wow, I've seen you with my own eyes. Deep. Strong. Yeah, and he's got a much better view of his own heart and his own person. Oh boy, boy, you know, I thought I was a good man, but now I've had such a close encounter with the Lord, I sit back in dust and ashes to show my repentance. And verse 7 continues After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So remember these two friends were accusing Job of sinning and that his suffering was because he had sinned. They couldn't think of any other reason why Job would be suffering. In verse 10, when Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. So all these things we're going to read now are physical things. But obviously, I hope you understand, the greatest thing that Job gained through this trial was his deeper relationship with God. So keep that in mind. So when Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Then all his brothers, sisters, and former friends came and feasted with him in his home, and they consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him. God allows it, yeah? Remember? one hand, God's bringing the trial. the other hand, he's supporting us. And we're changing. We're growing to become more like him. And each of them brought a gift of money and a gold ring. So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. He named his first daughter Jemima, their second daughter, Keziah, and the third daughter, Karen Hapak. In all the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job. And their father put them into his will along with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died an old man who had lived a long, full life. So again, coming back to Job chapter 42 verse 5, the greatest blessing that Job got was a deeper relationship with God. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the fiery furnace. Who was there with them? The Son of God. The only thing they lost was their bonds, anything that would tie them down to this earth. So, for me, if a trial results in me growing closer to God, loving Him more, then I will gladly embrace it And willingly endure it because of the joy of a closer love relationship with God. But I have to add there, most of the time. (laughs) Because, why? Sometimes the trial reveals that I'm not submitted to God. The trial reveals that my faith is not there. My faith is in something else, not in God. So sometimes I fail the trial. Sometimes I don't embrace it. And the trial can make you better or it can make you bitter. Now, the physical blessings that Job received, we don't get those blessings down here on earth. We don't get everything doubled and whatever. Our reward is where? In heaven, yeah. Paul describes it this way, and we're going to just finish with these. Verses from 2 Corinthians 4, 7-10 to and 16-18. to We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. In verse 16, that is why we never give up though our bodies are dying our spirits are being renewed every day for our present troubles are small now if you read the list of paul's troubles there are shipwrecks and stonings and you know all kinds of things it goes on for quite a while but he describes his present troubles as being small and won't last very long yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So two things. How long will they last? Forever. And comparatively, the glory, the reward, vastly outweighs the trial. God rewards us in a disproportionate way. We get much more than we deserve. Much bigger reward than we can ever expect. What does the scripture say? I has not seen, nor ear heard, what God has prepared for those who love him. Yeah. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. So let's stand and we're going to read our verses for today. James chapter 5 verses 9 to 11. Read it together if that's Okay. So we'll finish with a public reading of scripture. And then we'll finish with a couple of songs. So James chapter 5 verses 9 to 11. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Father, help us never to forget that your heart is soft, really soft toward us, like a parent cuddling a day-old baby. Just... Compassion oozing out of you towards your children, Lord. Help us never to forget that. Help us not to forget how much you love us and how much you care for us. Help us not to forget that while one hand is allowing the trial or causing the trial, the other hand is supporting us through the trial. And in the end, the trial makes us strong. We become more like you. And the joy that comes from a deeper relationship with you, from understanding that we are not the people we thought we were, but we need to change. And then changing is just fantastic. So help us to keep on that path, Lord, the path of character development that leads us to be able to love our brothers and sisters and also to express God's agape love, to demonstrate God's agape love by the power of the Spirit as we love our enemies, those who persecute and hurt us. Please pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.